case number 28. Please state your name and crime for the record. My name is Taylor, and I read a book this week. What have you done? Well, I watched a full series of a TV show. We're not too different, you and I. Welcome, everybody. This week we are doing Mind Hunter by John E. Douglas. Mm. Inside the FBI's elite serial crime unit, the basis for the Netflix series Mind Hunter, which I'm sure you may or may not have heard about all over town. Mm-hmm. John, I watched the whole thing. <laughs> uh, I had already seen season one and I, I blasted through season two. And I read the book Mind Hunter. This guy has also written over 15 other books, including Journey into Darkness, which is just more profiles of killers, The Anatomy of Motive, <laughs> The Killer Across the Table, which came out this year. But this guy is the FBI behavioral unit starter, the original real deal. So he is also the model for the character Jack Crawford in Silence of the Lambs. Oh, really? The head of the, <laughs> of I didn't the know FBI that. unit. Yeah. Oh, very and cool. so he, I think, consulted a little bit on that movie. Oh, my God. And then if you're watching the show Mind Hunter, he plays Holden Ford. That is the John E. Douglas character. The other investigators as well, Bill Tench uh, next to uh, Holden Ford is based on Robert K. Ressler. Who is the other guy? He is the person responsible for coining the term serial killer. He came up with that term. I also found that this guy, Robert Ressler, wrote a book called Whoever Fights Monsters, which is very, it's just his experience Mm -hmm. of the stuff going on with the FBI in that time. So if you wanted yeah, the other guy's other... story in book form, it says, I don't know how they picked Mindhunter yeah. versus this guy's yeah, story. Yeah, I'd be but... interested to know which why they picked one over the other. That's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other one, uh, Dr. Wendy Carr, she's based on... Ann Burgess. Ann Burgess. Mm-hmm. Who was a, I don't think she was a psychologist. She was a practicing nurse. She had stuff to do with mm-hmm. the program that they institute, which we'll get to later, which is the whole interviewing all the serial killers and figuring out how to profile these people so that we can stop them mm. and stop other people before it's too late. Very cool. Yeah. And then just so that everybody knows, obviously we're talking about Mindhunter. We're going to spoil everything. Yes. All of Mindhunter, both season one and season two. We'll go through it all. Yeah. So mm-hmm. the book starts in 1983 with John E. Douglas going into a coma in Seattle. He was oh, wow. giving a talk and then went to the hotel, wasn't feeling too well, and then They checked up on him in the morning because he didn't show up to the next thing. Oh, no. And he was convulsing in his room, and uh, he was in a coma for a week. Oh, my gosh. And it was for viral encephalitis, which is like a virus that affects your brain. He had a fever of 107, and they were basically like, he's done. The FBI came out. They were planning his funeral arrangements. Whoa. And he came up out of it, went back to work four months later, (laughs) got a standing (laughs) ovation. Worked until 1995, but that panic attack was kind of a wake-up call to him, and I believe that that is potentially somewhat represented at the end of season one. Yeah, that is the the break of season one. Um, He gets involved with um, a major resource of his, Ed Kemper, um, and he goes to visit Ed in the hospital, and push comes to shove, a nurse walks away and Ed Kemper corners him and kind of brings it all on the, on the table. It's like, I am, I have control over this situation and uses that as a way to like really suss out like why Holden is, is actually here. Like through all of the hours of, in, of interrogation that they've been together, is he my friend or is he using me? So that kind of comes lay bare and Holden doesn't have anything to say other than he just doesn't know why he came to visit 
Ed and not, and then in, in the middle of this, Ed embraces him. This is how like it, it's so claustrophobic, and the tension rises through the entire scene, mm-hmm. and you see Holden just absolutely snap and break free of the struggle and rush out into the hallway, and this is where everything starts to catch up to him, and, and they really illustrate mm-hmm. a fantastic portrait of a of an anxiety attack. I did like how the book started out though with hey. I'm almost dead because of this. Yeah, absolutely. That's a fact. That's a great place to start. And, yeah. I, and I'm interested now. It's like, oh, because and 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 this problem doesn't leave him. It, like mm-hmm. all through now, season two, he has. Uh, you see that it's it, it, this is a lasting effect, and at any time maybe he could be set off again, and, and yeah. nobody's really sure what the pressure point is. So it's interesting because that could just be a setup for what happens down the line in later seasons. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a bigger. Yeah, situation. maybe they use yeah. it as a bigger moment. This actual one, mm-hmm. who knows. So just as far as for the context of what he's doing, he explicitly says in the book, we do not catch criminals. Our job is to assist the local enforcement. The cops are the ones doing everything. We just narrow the field or help draw them out. Right. And the thing that they're struggling with and trying to figure out is what they're actually trying to accomplish. So he goes out a little bit into this book about what is the different way that they're thinking about information. So the traditional way is called deduction. Everybody's heard these words, but that's going from a general piece of information to the specific versus induction, which is the other way, which is what Sherlock Holmes does, Mm -hmm. is going from a very specific piece of information, the fibers on the cloth of whatever there, and then deciding, oh, the person is... Uh, investment banker. It's like, how do you, you, people love that. It feels like a psychic thing. It's like, how did you figure that out? How do you go from the specific to the general? Right. So what I liked in this book, like we said, Rob Ressler is the other guy that's involved and he has his own other book where you could look at his experience, but specifically John Douglas is the voice of this since he was the main guy on it. So I was interested. Which again, I'll reiterate because it can get confusing. That relates directly to the Holden Ford character in Mindhunter. Okay. So yeah, so he has a bit of his life history, which I thought contributed in a lot of ways. And he brings out how this might make him a good person for this job of figuring out how serial killers think and then using that to help find other ones with crimes that you don't know what's going on. It's I'll be interested in this because from an audience member, I assume that a lot of the Holden Ford's actual character like his background and his backstory is largely what is made up in the series. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm really interested to see how Johnny Douglas's actual his how, what he brings to the table, how he was so successful doing what he's doing, and now how they've created what I assume is a, a really wholly mostly original character with his own backstory that right. also has this. I guess a lot of this probably what I'm assuming the same characteristics just exhibited in different ways that mm-hmm. play in to developing these yeah. tactics. So from the very beginning, he had a storytelling ability as a kid. And so there was this thing where they had to read this book for, this is in elementary school or something, this book report, read a book, write about it, give the presentation in front of the class. He didn't do it at all. Mm-hmm gets to his time to do it. And so he just goes up there and says, well, I'm going to make up a title. I'm going to make up an author and I'm just going to start telling a story about, (laughs) and he gets to the point where there's this campsite and these kids and there's a bear in the woods and they don't know what's about to happen. And he just breaks, which he was like, this is probably why I'm not a serial killer because I just started laughing halfway through and being like, Hey guys, sorry. Hey teacher, I made this up. This isn't an actual book. And everybody was like, well, f- at least finish the story. Like people were so yeah, involved in his story. Yeah, yeah, it was and then good. He got, and then he got an A on it. It's almost like 
he's looking at how do you become a serial killer and what are the causes of that? But this is also like, how do you become the person profiling serial killers? And you almost have to have lighter elements or at least an empathy for the skills that they possess. Right. Which is making stuff up on the spot. Yeah. So that was one thing. They do a good job. um, And that's largely in season one. Because like I said, season one is kind of focused on the Ford character of Mm -hmm. him trying to battle the line of, is he like these people that he's interviewing? Yeah. that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. So then the next thing, after, out of high school, he wanted to become a veterinarian. He never had any idea of going to the FBI or anything like that. Oh, that really? was his goal, become a veterinarian. So he worked on the farm while everybody else was goofing around in high school. And he was like, if I never have to milk a cow again in my life, I'd be happy. But he got an interest. And this is where maybe hey, you can see. You and me both, brother. <laughs> never want to milk a cow again in my life. But he was saying that he maybe developed an interest in like anatomy and bodies and then not also not became so squeamish, mm. you know, when okay, you have yeah. to slaughter a chicken or do, you right. know, these kind of things. It's like that, you know, it's a, the normal things that desensitize. <laughs> yeah. The subtler elements of, of murder. <laughs> he was great in athletics in school. So he was the pitcher in baseball and he was like, like I was just a decent pitcher, but psyching out the batter was the game of it. From a distance. So it's like, how can I intimidate somebody from 60 feet away so that they won't want to hit this ball? And then in football, he was like, we were not that great of a team, but we would purposefully practice crazy before the games and learn how to like throw each other with wrestling so we weren't actually hurting each other. But it looked like we were just tearing into each other when the other team was coming around. So they were like, oh, my God, if they're doing that to each other before the game, what are they going to (laughs) do to the competition? They're playing these mind games. <laughs> yeah. So already that's how his mind is working, is thinking about what is the other person thinking and how can yeah. I get to their weakness, which is what you might need if you were trying to understand somebody who's murdering people. Or if you're trying to lure, lure somebody into a murderous <laughs> trap. Become, yeah. Good thing he's not that we know of. And then he went to school for veterinary science and failed completely and was horrible and got arrested a couple times. It was just a total disaster. Arrested? Mm-hmm. For what? Uh, mostly alcohol stuff. Alcohol is a minor. It happens. And just general, yeah, you know, it happens. It happens. College. But uh, he then joins the Air Force in 66, but didn't want to be, because he figured that was the easiest thing with not getting into combat. And then this is like Vietnam coming up. You oh, know? yeah. So, but he got into personnel, t- which was just like typing, you know, documents and stuff. Mm-hmm. But it was right next to the athletic department. Mm. So he ended up becoming the athletic director or one of the major people for the Air Force and scheduling things and doing all this stuff, has no experience whatsoever, and met this guy who worked for the FBI during workouts, like, off base. And he was like, hey, you should do this. And then, lo and behold, that's how he gets into the FBI. Wow. Is from all that. You know, it was so funny. I was finishing the season two yesterday, and I got a... a, a (laughs) I've <laughs> got an email. It's like, want to work for the FBI? Here, work for the FBI. And, you know, here in Burbank, California, FBI, Federal Bureau of Investigation. Yeah, yeah. Here's that. You know, like, it was it was ridiculous. And I was like, maybe I should just join the FBI. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have what it takes. This is Sitting here, like, planning out my new life. Like, well, maybe I could. As I'll be this guy. Yeah. <laughs> Give up everything. I would. Don't test me, Taylor. <laughs> but the FBI at this time was not probably at all what it is now. So J. Edgar Hoover was still in charge when he goes in. The um, illustrious. Mm-hmm. So it's like white men only, average age between 29 and 35. He's 25 at the time, so he's a little bit younger and a little bit more green. So he has a lot of you know work to do to <laughs> gain respect from the people around him. He was saying how insane it was is they had a whole thing where they had a list of 
dirty words, which is just swear words and yeah. various things. It was like if it was coming into the system or if they were interrogating somebody and this was coming through, they had a separate obscene stenographer who was just a lady secretary who could handle these words because mm-hmm. that's how misogynistic they are. They were like, oh, these normal secretaries can't handle that. So you've got to – if you ever you have a transcript that has these words, it has to go through her – because, because she's she the only lady it. that can handle it. Yeah. Oh, my God. So he thought that was insane. And then they got to choose their stationing. So he was like, everybody's going to pick L.A., New York, San Francisco, like the big city. So if I pick more of a mid-sized city, mm-hmm. I'll probably get it. So he picked Atlanta, and then they gave him Detroit. So he just cool. went to <laughs> Detroit. So the first thing he started I doing. I picked my third choice. <laughs> I picked my fourth, fifth, sixth choice. And they still. All right, fine. We're going to Detroit. <laughs> But he his first then foray is uh, bank robbers. So there's like two or three every Friday banks getting robbed in Detroit. Good Lord. And he's a part of the reactive crimes unit. So looking at what's going on after and hopefully trying to prevent based on what's happened. I hope um, he's like shaking hands and every time he locks like uh, locks eyes with you and like tries. To, <laughs> are you gonna yeah. rob a bank? <laughs> Um, but this is where I found the start of his interviewing goes because he's interviewing these people that did okay. get caught. Yeah. A little tease of what he ends up devoting his whole career to. And he's trying to see patterns that fit together with bank robberies. So he'd look at and be like, okay, well, we see that a lot of these banks being robbed is because they're closer to the highways. And so that allows them easier access to flee via a car. Right. Or they're picking ones and he asks them and they're like, yeah, we – case the joints and only go to ones where they only have female bank tellers. There's no men in the lobby because that mm. would pose more of a threat to us trying to run out of there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we do a thing where we walk up and then drive away. So it's two different modes of transport so that it's oh. hard for us to track. So he was figuring out these things. Then he's like, oh, as a part of the reactive crimes unit, we can almost make it like a proactive crimes unit and we can find ways to try and force robbers to select the bank that we want and have it set up. You know, if we know that this is the things they're looking for and then kind of blackmail them into it. One situation he does have with the police and again, going into his background of how these elements fit into his character of a serial killer interviewer is there was a truck that got hijacked that had $100,000 worth of scotch whiskey in it in Detroit. And the FBI, for whatever reason, was called in this and that. And then a police officer points a gun at him and he's like, drop Mm. your gun because he has a gun up and he... In that moment, he's like, I'll never forget what that felt like. And he's like, anytime I try to go into the head of a victim, because it's not just thinking about from the serial killer's perspective, but what are these victims doing in the moment as this person is coming up on them? And he's like, that's what I go to. Because it was like, in that second, I was like, oh, I'm dead. Because they don't know that I'm here. I have no, and I have a gun and they're looking for people, you know, mm-hmm. he's going to shoot mm-hmm. me and I'm going to be. And so you kind of need that, not only Lord. in the interviewing of the bad people, uh, but what is it, what would it feel like to be the other person? Yeah. And it's interesting because in the show they they illustrate it well with the two the two main guys uh, Holden Ford and Bill Tinch and Holden Ford being the Douglas guy he he he's always leaning a little bit more empathetic. Well, but what is it like? We're not so different. Or mm-hmm. you know like don't don't you see how it's how A leads to B leads to C? While the other guy's a little more hard nosed, a little more traditionalist, and so yeah. there's a bit of a tension there and trying to win him over. But then obviously things start to work. But he just looks at things a bit differently. So it's not always a yes man on Ford. Yeah. Um, and so through that, you that, that what you were just talking about really gets illustrated, I think. Good. Yeah. yeah. He finds his wife here in Michigan. Um, they move to Milwaukee. He becomes a SWAT team sniper for a time. Tight. As well as becoming a recruiter for the FBI office there in Milwaukee. 
and then he starts training back again at Quantico in more hostage type stuff, which is where he gets more interested into the psychology mm-hmm. instead of the field work. Mm-hmm. And then we're off to the races. He's not too hot with Hoover. Uh, he's a part of the investigative support unit, which is they're trying to take the BS, the behavioral science out of it. <laughs> so he changes the name and changes the game, <laughs> changes the game. There's a guy named Mulaney who is on these cases and this is who he takes over. Mm. And now it's 1977 and he's transferred into this specific unit in Virginia and this is where I'd about to say season one is start. the start yeah. of how are we going to change this organization? Yeah. What are we actually doing with this? Now we have the layout for who he is as a character. His big fear at the start is not being good enough for this position. There's only nine agents, and the prevailing theory is that motive is the main cause. Go for motive. Right. That's how you right. figure it out. And because psychology is much more for the academics. So this is where he starts, and the first person he decides to interview is Ed Kemper, oh, who okay. is – the guy you said who comes in. Yeah, at Ed Kemper becomes moments. a huge resource for them throughout season one and then mm-hmm. into season two. He ends up being the most available, most uh, prolific of the profiles that they do of these serial killers. He wants to help. He thinks the work they're doing is interesting. Mm-hmm. He's also horrifying. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, a, an incredible character in, in the show and, and amazing that he's the first one that was interviewed uh-huh. in real life. Yeah. Wow. And he said that in the book, he's like, I liked Ed and I enjoyed being around him. Obviously, he's a crazy person who admits, I mean, he turned himself in and was like, I need to be locked up because yep. I can't be out in the real world. Yep, yep, yep. And that self-awareness is crazy, but also like good on you that you realize that you're a madman. Yeah. And can't be stopped. He's almost a a strange reflection of the Holden Ford character in a weird way, because they, at least more than anybody else in the show, they both know who they are. You see the parallel between between them uh, and why the two of them, with their, Mm. just how they work as human beings, actually help get a lot of this work done. It's like kind of like Batman and Joker. Yeah. In a way. In the classic protagonist, antagonist, like you're both going for the same goal, but going about it in vastly different ways. Yes. This is like, this is like Batman and Joker teamed up on a like PowerPoint. (laughs) (laughs) And didn't actually do any crime fighting or arson. Yeah. They they just met in a back room for a couple of years and was like, but this would be cool. I'll post some links because I saw, I found some videos of the actual Ed Kemper interviews and the guy who acts as Ed Kemper. And it's like sometimes line for line. It's wild. Motion for motion. And they do that for, I think, just about all of the serial killers that they profile. The one, uh-huh. everything that I have seen is just so spot on. It's it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I just, I just saw today a new comparison for the Manson one, which we'll get to mm-hmm. a little later. But yeah. yeah. Well, we can get to the Manson one now, actually. <clears throat> so basically the way that I'll go from here is now he's in the thing. He's trying to figure out this program. He started not asking for permission, but forgiveness of like, we're just going to go on the the sly. That is the way it goes. That's how everybody gets everything done. Make your reach exceed your grasp. Be authentic. (laughs) And do work. Anyway, so he is on that track saying, if I want to be of value to these police speeches and whatever, I got to know stuff about and help them profiling and starting this whole other arm of we can help you profile, reduce the suspects, all that kind of stuff. So he's starting by interrogating and interviewing well, not interrogating, just interviewing yeah. these people that have already committed the crimes, already been caught, trying to understand them so that he can figure out the commonalities between things and build a Rolodex in his mind. Okay, if I see this and this and this and this, and this probably means that. And that's yeah. why he looks like Sherlock Holmes right. is because he has it all in his mind. But he wants to quantify it and figure it out. So he teams up with Ann Burgess, 
the doctor car the doctor psychiatrist more nurse character to come up with exactly what the deal is so they end up finishing the whole thing they end up i think it's 36 people that they interview and go through and they have a system for it and all that stuff and get funding through a grant to make this happen yeah that is all illustrated through season one and then the first quarter of season two Mm -hmm. so that's in the real world they end up finishing a book if you wanted to read the book that they came out with it's more of a textbook, but it's called Sexual Homicide Patterns and Motives, and it came out in 88. Gripping. And it is the textbook for this kind of stuff. <laughs> they wrote the book on it. They literally, <laughs> that's all they wanted to do. So going into kind of some of the commonalities of what they found before we go into Manson, in general, you look at it and it's like, oh yeah, they have terrible, terrible childhoods. Yeah. Like there's never been one of them that's been like, oh yeah, it was a great childhood, and then you started murdering people. <laughs> it's like they all have sexual abuse domineering parents, lack of parents, horrible, you know, horrible, horrible yes. stuff. But that's an easy thing to look at. It's like, well, how do we figure out exactly who this is? So he's saying the three things that these crimes end up being started by is domination, manipulation, or control. Mm. And a reason for that is because they have a fantasy of having those things. So a lot of times they'll be fascinated with the police or try and ingrain themselves into the investigation. Right. Or like Ed Kemper was at police bars and they were surprised when he called himself in. They're like, Ed, (laughs) we can't come pick you up. You didn't do this stuff because he was hanging out with them at the bars. There's this fascination, like I said, and the police officer is almost like Batman and Joker. It's like the thing that they wish they could be, but on the wrong side of that. And so a lot of times they'll take these shadow jobs like being a night watch or being a security guard. And it allows them the opportunity to then exert that domination, manipulation, and control. So Manson, who he meets in San Quentin, obviously fits into the manipulation Mm -hmm. category Mm -hmm. of that. I mean, shades of all of them. But – a thing that they I do know that they transfer over is he said Manson sat on top of the chair the whole time. I was wondering about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that was actually a fascinating in way to block out that scene. So I wondered if that was if that was a real thing or if that mm-hmm. was just something the filmmakers thought. Well, Charlie might would do this. No, he de- he did That's that awesome. in the interview, and he was like, that was definitely a clue to be like, okay, look for that in these types of people. He wants to be above. And he yeah. said he saw that as a trend. It wasn't just Manson. Manson was a short guy as mm-hmm. well. So I think that, you know, yeah. like that plays right. And if you've been listening with us, we've covered Manson more directly. In so Chaos. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. I found the, the Manson scene to be quite fascinating because the way they use him relates directly to the uh, the Bill Tench character, the Robert K. Wrestler uh, inspiration, mm-hmm. that character. Because that character through season two is dealing with a with a uh, a very private family matter, unbeknownst to his coworkers. His son was um, accessory to a the murder of an infant with some other boys. And this is not based in and reality. Thi- and this and so this is something I think a lot of people are curious about is whether or not this is based in any kind of truth at all. And it is not, as mm-hmm. far as I could find. No, uh, there's no case like this whatsoever. I don't even mean in relation to these people. I mean that there's no there's no case that resembles the actions of these children mm-hmm. and in this event. But in in a in a fascinating arc, the Bill Tinch character is actively dealing with the implications of his work in his family life. He is confronted day to day uh, to ask himself if they have done this to him or if this was just part of the child inherently. Uh, The nature versus nurture argument, which we've touched on uh, time and time again. So 
all that is subtext for the Manson scene. It's interesting as as Manson starts to talk about the societal implications of how we raise our children, you know, like what we indoctrinate children with just in society as it is, and the worlds that we build separate, and how you start to realize, oh, God. The Bill Tinch character is this is speaking directly to what's going on in his in his life, and that dominates the scene. They don't even get to profile, you know, like that. It it all becomes about that. So I, mean, I, th- I just yeah. thought it was a really fascinating scene that ends with uh, Tinch storming out and pulling Ford with him. And at the very end, uh, Manson asks for Ford's sunglasses. He just likes them. Can I have them? Yeah. And then guard follows him out, hands him his sunglasses. Like, hey, Manson said he lifted these off of you. He's bragging about it. What? <laughs> just a lot. So, and just, just being a beautiful up. portrait of just like what, like what, the, like what is what is he do? like? What yeah. is Manson's game? And then at the end of it, is it just to like I? It, it felt just so. He he illustrates very very clearly by the end of the scene that he is free in his own mind, and there's nothing you can do about it, mm-hmm. which is only infuriating when you want him to pay for something and you don't even know what for. It, yeah. it, it's it, it's incredibly con complex and it's just not how I, int- I thought they would use this character i thought they would use it for some bigger implication they would probably overstretch him a bit and that it would probably be a little bit more about sharon tate and august 9th 1960 yeah. no, no no this was squarely about a character arc yeah and that's all it was well and that's what i th- probably why like we talk about the literary significance as it applies to modern times and it's like you look at these vignettes of the people that he's interviewed and what he's found and then all of that is being used in the story context Whereas in this is just kind of like bare bones. He's not saying how it necessarily affected his personal life or anything like that. But it's it's good of the show to use it in a story context so that you can actually get something out of it besides just the facts of a murder. It's it's you know the the whole child the the child murder the Tinch family story is is just a a personification of all of the paranoia that goes into developing this type of work. Yeah. Um, so that, that's all I kind of read it as, but how beautiful to actually get me emotionally involved in the work they're doing with mm-hmm. an, a, a B story, a C story, you know? Yeah. Uh, and then to wrap it around and use that as the device for one of your main draws for this season. It's a, just a hugely cinematic. Good writing, yeah. So we're going to go through just a couple more main characters that end up being in the show that he interviews, high profile. Yeah. Uh, one of them that comes up is this guy, Speck. He considers more of a mass murderer than a serial killer. Got involved in this situation. What's the distinction there? That's interesting because I had between mass murderer and serial killer because that sounds very similar to me. Yeah, mass murderer is just a bunch of people in a similar geographic location, usually all at once, or as opposed to oh, you know, it's just like these shootings and the you know these things that we see. Versus a serial killer is a planned, orchestrated, with a theme. Or of significance to over each time, crime, over, uh, usually over a long a span of time, basically until they get a short amount of time, right? And so a spree, yeah, 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 yeah. And okay, so he killed gotcha. eight That's women good. all at once, but was it was treated like, hey, this is this heinous thing, and there was right. sexual nature to it and whatnot. And so he interviews him at Joliet and uses this tactic in the sense that, like, he knows a bit more about people now, and he's saying the the psychology of it. He realizes this guy gets off on being a macho man, which he sort of fudged the truth about this, and it was more like he couldn't handle the situation that was going on, so just went on the spree and murdered them Mm. and didn't have the intent at the beginning to do what ended up happening in that room at the time. But in order to 
keep in line with this guy. You kind of got to be at his level and talk to him like he right. wants to be talked to. That's a dangerous thing, and they, and they illustrate that so well through, throughout the series. Is like he, uh, the Holden Ford character has to empathize with them and talk with them at their level, which is just that at a human level, you want to go, no, stop. How could you even? Yeah. But you have like, but but how could you not? Almost, I want to like. That's the purpose of this work. Who yeah. are they, and how, and why? Yeah, and he. So in this particular situation, he talks really crass and really not like a professional FBI agent. In in if you were right. to just look right. at it at face value, you'd be like, oh, you're a serial killer. You're talking about these things so grotesquely as if they were just objects, but he gets the guy to be like, no, 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 that's not what happened because he needs him to maintain his honor as the macho man taking control of the situation. So one of the things that he goes into, there's this guy, Brutos, uh, who loves shoes. And a big thing that comes about is how these people will refine their fantasy over time and improve the detail. So it just starts with him taking women's shoes or stealing them as a kid and then ends up becoming graphically raping and murdering mm-hmm. and whatever and dressing up bodies and, and insane stuff. But it, it, it builds over time. But the pathology of it and psychology of it is still the same. And I believe this comes into the show in the same episode. There's this principal who's tickling little kids' toes right, right, right. or something like that. And yeah. then um, he gets in trouble for it and he gets fired. He doesn't actually get arrested or anything like that in the book. But he agrees with, yeah, that was a good, like, technically, he's not really doing anything wrong. He's not going completely overboard, but. He's laying the groundwork to go wrong. Yeah, and Johnny Douglas sees and knows the kind of things and sees, like, this isn't just one isolated incident. It's a refinement, like I said, a refinement of the fantasy. And if you left him in this position, most of the stuff, and this is what he goes into, it's always, always, always when you look at why these people are doing things, there's a stressor that happens. And basically every single one is either the person loses their job or loses a wife or girlfriend or they're assumed like they think that person is loving them and they lose right. them, quote unquote. So it's like it right. always ends up being that thing that propels them over the edge. Um, Cliche. No, it's <laughs> truth. It's the truth. And the, yeah, the other thing. So now one of the ones that was big is the son of Sam. Oh, yeah. Guy, Berkowitz. The thing that he's pushing against again with the psychiatry and and mind hunting that is not true is the self-reporting of these criminals because their mm-hmm. whole thing is designed to manipulate and confuse. And this was seen as a good thing. It's like, oh yeah, he's making progress. You know, he's just lying and looking like he's making progress. You cannot trust right. the criminal in their own assessment of how they're doing mentally. Very true. For listeners who might not know who Sam was, can you set that up just a little? Yeah. So he was a guy who kind of like the lover's lane murder would go around to couples parked in, in dark places and murder them and more of an assassin almost as opposed right. to doing grotesque things with the bodies. This was and, in New York, right? And things like that. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was New York, New York. In, in 76. And he had – the other thing, he had these letters that he would leave at the scenes that were really crazy mm. and saying how he was the son of Sam and Sam was making him do these things. And then they realized that – he said – there was his neighbor's dog, it, like Sam was his neighbor, and then his dog ha- was possessed by this demon, right? Three thousand year old demon who blood. was telling him to do these crimes, and so then that That's became like the, the huge famous story. Story yeah. is like, oh yeah, his his neighbor's black Labrador was Spoke telling to him, him to murder people. So this Johnny Douglas character looks at this and he's like, these things, 
again, looking at what their pathologies are and what their craziness is, like he's appealing to his ego. If you look at the actual crime scenes, which maybe people didn't realize, he comes around to the passenger side to shoot them every single time, hmm. which for a lot of these people, they have problems with their mom or they have problems with relating to women because basically all of them are men, which we'll get into at the very end for why he thinks that that's the case. Hmm. Um, but if you were looking at it from a logistical perspective or from an assassin perspective, most of the time in this time and place, the guy is driving and he would pose the most risk. So you would want to go up to his window and shoot him so that you wouldn't get attacked or he right. couldn't drive away or right. whatever it might be. So it wasn't about that. It was about shooting the women yeah, straight up. And so he also would you know, go back to the similar crime scenes. Like the things that people again. do aren't random even when they're not thinking yeah. about it. They are. You know? Yeah. And reliving the fantasy. It's like it had nothing to do with a dog telling him right. to do – you know what I mean? It had to do with his history. It had to do with all the stuff that we talk about. So he comes in and when he's talking to Son of Sam – or Berkowitz about this stuff – he brings up the dog yeah. deal and he just says, knock off the bull. And yeah. the guy laughs and nods and is like, yeah, you're right. Like that actually happened. He was able to get the guy to be like, yeah, that's not that's not why I did it. It's used in season two as such a, uh, a breath of fresh air. Mm -hmm. uh, this is such an illustrious uh, serial killer. This is almost God tier for them. Yeah. Um, they've just now gotten some money flowing into the department with a new FBI director that kind of believes in the program. So they do this and man, they blow it out of the park. Cause like, just like you said, he kind of pushes like, come on, cut the bullshit. And he, you're right. Yeah. And, and it's so relieving because now after all of the, uh, does it work? Is it crazy? You know, like, it works, and you see it lay bare. You just see the dude drop the act, and I'm think sitting there thinking, like, did this happen? Mm -hmm. This is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it happened. So apparently, it happened. I'm here to tell you it uh, happened. that that's probably the most amazing true thing, uh, like singular moment of mm -hmm. the of the sea of this of, of at least season two that I'm like, no way that happened, and it apparently happened just like that. Yeah. So there was a certain crime in San Francisco called the Trailside Killer, mm. where he was nabbing women off of the trail in this hiking. And it got crazy oh, to where people are Never like really scared. And there was alerts and like they tried all these different things. They tried having rangers that were posing as women. They tried blocking off certain things. They couldn't figure it out. Right. And he comes in, looks at the stuff, looks at the crime scenes, looks at how the women were positioned after, looks at the location and is like, here's what you need to be looking for. The guy's got a speech impediment. And they're like, how what? in the world – could you have deduced, like, <laughs> that's who we should be looking for at all? And so the way that he surmises this, and I'm going to be skipping over some things, but it was like blitz attacks because he could tell that it wasn't a prolonged thing based on how the bodies were and what was how they okay. ended up dying. So it was a quick thing, a strangulation. The bodies were in a place where he, they were removed from view, right? And he had to, so he had to move them around. And uh, it was always from the rear, so he didn't want the person seeing them. Oh. Um and so, you you know, you could potentially imply that he was ashamed of himself. A lot of these times they're not good with yeah. women versus the yeah, Ted yeah, Bundy yeah. where he's suave and debonair and can get them into his car and then do whatever. This was like a quick hit. He also had to know the area. So he had to be someone from around, just like all of the classic Sherlock Holmesy stuff where he's deducing this and that and this and that. And he's like, based on everything I know and how these things go down, this guy was awkward, not good with women. He was ashamed of something. We could say that it was yeah. some sort of disability or deformity, but- he had to move these women away from where he was to further into the park, which means he didn't have polio or he didn't have some sort of physical right. disability. He might have had 
acne or some sort of disfigurement, but that would have been very easy to notice because now people are on high alert right. for somebody who's doing shady things in the park. So the only thing that would have happened that wouldn't have been noticeable, but that would still have given him a lot of guff is if he had had a stutter or something like that. And he was like, you probably already talked to him. That is the most classic thing that he says through all oh of these. Because like I said, they're usually trying to insert themselves into the case, trying to be involved in what's going on, having that power trip. Yeah. And so it ends up being exactly all of the things that he said, like a psychic. And the guy had a stutter. <laughs> Good Lord. And so that ends up being like probably in similar to the to the Son of Sam thing in the show where it's like, this works, you yeah. know? How do, you know? I imagine that they'll use this in later seasons. The idea is that this will be five seasons overall. Mm-hmm. Um, they've, they've went on to say that. So yeah, and and interesting. We haven't talked about it. Be the uh, moving on the the prospect of it being five seasons. We haven't talked about the BTK stuff at all. Or do you want to save that? No, we can talk about it. There's not too much in the book about that. Okay, because this book was published in 1995. Oh, okay, yeah, so that case was ten years. Solved. Yeah. So for yeah. anybody who doesn't know. Uh, the BTK killer was active through the 70s and 80s and the 90s and was caught finally in 2005. Mm-hmm. Mindhunter, starting in 77, now through uh, season two ends in 81, every episode has a vignette with the BTK killer. And so a lot of people are speculating and wondering as to how this actually will uh, will culminate. Right. Um, so that, that's, yeah, there's no, there's not really a mention in the book because it's still early yeah, on. In that's that 10 case, years before he ever even gets out. caught. Yeah. There is one that he does figure out through an interrogation of the actual person committing the crime. As Say opposed, again? so like as opposed to interviewing an old serial killer mm-hmm. and figuring something mm-hmm. out, or consulting with the police officers about and who might have done it. They're right. like, we think it's this guy, and he gets the confession. He gets the confession yeah. from this person using some of these techniques he's learned about serial killers and how their mind works. Yeah. So there's this woman or child basically named Mary Stoner in uh, 79 who was found dead, didn't show up at the bus stop or whatever, really grotesque yeah. out in the woods. And again, in his psychic ways, he's like, you're looking for somebody with a dark colored car. I'm like, <laughs> all right, cool. We're looking for somebody with a black or blue car, along with all the other things. But that was they like do the that one- a lot in, in the second season. Is this him like tr- saying something, an idea like that? It, mm-hmm. These are a little, these are a little crazier. But even than what's in the show. But I think this is the beginnings. If this is going to be five yeah. seasons, this is the beginnings of him starting to kind of throw paint at the wall and being right and nobody believing him, yeah. and then having to be proven right because it's an emotional gut reaction. Or later on, he can say like, "Oh no, no, based on this pattern and based on all the people I know, this person had to do this, and they yep. were more organized." But it was all also a crime of opportunity yeah. because of this situation that happened here. And so you can see maybe it looks disorganized, but there was an organization premeditated and more people that are organized favor darker cars. And because she didn't have stains on her clothes here and was brought out into the woods, that means it was done in a car, which means he cares about it, which means that's what you need to be looking for. And you're like, good that's Lord. That's fascinating. Yeah. But with this, so they got the guy, but they need him to talk about what it was. So he's saying for this, and this I think is in the show, is his tactics with interviewing people. Mm-hmm. And he's like, bring all the files on the desk and put his name on the top. Even if none of those files mm-hmm. have to do with him, make it look like we have a lot mm-hmm. of stuff mm-hmm. on him because we really don't. He's got a blue car, you know, <laughs> but put all the files up here. And again, this is going back to, I think like his bank robbery yeah, investigation days. And it's a saying, little bit of pressure. It's it's a bluff. Yeah. And he's saying we saw we found this rock that had blood on it next to it, which means that we know that 
it, again, he loves being organized. We know that about him, but he had to use the rock, which means that was an improv, improvised thing. He thought she would die and she didn't. So like that's right. going to really freak him out. So bring that into the interview room, set it on Ooh. the desk off to the side so he has to look at it and then insinuate because we know when the rock hits, there was going to be blood on him. And again, because he's super organized, he's going to hate that. And so be like, where was the blood on you? Like we know that this happened. We know there was blood on you. Also, so these are the other two things. Do it late at night because that implies that we're working around the clock. Oh, there's yeah. Also no, That's in the show. That there's is no in the pressure show, yeah. for lunch or there's no pressure yep. to go home for the day. It's like we can be here. This is really important to us. And then the last thing, which maybe isn't in the show, but he says he used for or suggested that police officers do this is like if you have to even wait a week, obviously tail the person and keep on them, make sure they're not doing anything, but like – put it closer to a holiday or their birthday or some other significant event in their life. So that way when you pressure them and they're like, this is the last time this is going to be easy for you before it gets really hard, they might reconsider and be like, oh, if I don't work with them now, this is going to be the last time mm. that I have my birthday with my family or this right. is the last time that I'm going to enjoy a Christmas season. Oh, my gosh. Um, so he does all that with this guy. And then, of course, he rats himself out, which leads us into Atlanta where he worked uh, and some other cases where he's we're kind of done him interviewing people and now actually helping out with real cases. So um, the Atlanta child murders. I am from Atlanta. Um, I'm from mm -hmm. Georgia. I have never heard of this before. So I'm watching all of season two. I didn't look up anything while I'm, I blasted through this. Mm -hmm. um, and and this is unfolding. And I'm thinking, is this fake? Is this just a, like a made-up event that the showrunners have created to kind of exemplify everything? Is, you know, maybe it's based on, and it's a kind of a cum culmination of all. Oh, no, <laughs> uh, tons of it's yeah. actually it's it's astonishing. I've never heard this story before, mm -hmm. uh, and the fact that we don't talk about this and no, and that seemingly nobody's really interested in trying to put the definitive button on this is really wild. Mm -hmm. um, so as just as an audience member, the, this unfolding on the screen, I didn't really even believe it. So what's happening is young black children are being murdered at an alarming rate over the course of a year, I believe. It starts, uh, expanded 79 to 81. Mm -hmm. um, so this is not yeah. a long amount of time. And they, and they, and it every time they mention a number in the show, it goes up. And, and, and you realize, oh, my God, it's been, you know, oh, my God, it's been Double another. Digits. Oh, my God, yeah. wow. Uh, it goes from 6, 11, 16, 21, 20. It, yeah. It's wild. And, and they're and trying that to. factor as well is, like, reinforcing me. It's like, no way, this, this did not happen. I'm like, I would know. I would, because mm -hmm. I. I was into horror Prime, stuff as, a, as a, I made horror movies as a as a high school and all this stuff. I was in Atlanta. I should have known about this, so I'm yeah. kind of I'm kind of uh, flabbergasted that I didn't. They were flabbergasted too because they were trying to work with all the different counties and all the different areas yeah. associated with it. The FBI is wondering whether they can be involved in any of this, and it's just madness, and it just keeps happening, and they don't know who's doing it. And they don't know if they're connected or if it's separate or if it's a bigger thing or if it's the Klan or right. if it's hate crimes. And The sociopolitical undertones that kind of hang over this thing are really palpable. 
I mean, it speaks to just what's going on right now. And, and it, it helps me as somebody born in the 90s connect to, you know, 20 years beyond my reach and being like, oh, I'm not just because that happened back then doesn't mean that what we deal with, what I'm dealing with, what you're dealing with, what you out there are dealing with is all that much different mm-hmm. to what people back then were, were, were dealing with. So right. it, it, it start, that's how you take these things out of story and bring them in like, no, it just happened and you're not so much different. I mean, the exact same thing with ha- breaking down these killers and figuring out who they really were as people and why. And the, how the past does not mean that they're okay. Like, a lot of bad stuff happens to a lot of people, and not everybody becomes a serial killer. Right. It's not an excuse. Right. But it is a reason. Yeah. And to figure out how all that fits together. But the big thing that was the scandal as far as the reason and the excuse is the FBI and this behavioral investigation decided that the main person that they were looking for was an African-American man. Which, which was, they did not want out. Uh, right. The, the political social pressure was that they're looking for a white man. This is the Klan. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact a black male going where we think we're looking for a black male, which sounds like the, you know, it's like we're looking for a 20s black male between 5'5 yeah. five, five and 6'8. Yeah. Like, that could be anybody. <laughs> but it was scandalous because basically every single serial killer was a white man. Right. And inflicted crimes upon white women. The crimes of serial killers did not cross race. Yeah, and that at is all. reiterated heavily in season two. Is, mm-hmm. And he keeps trying to say this is like the, these killers do not jump racial boundaries. They just yeah. typically do not. And his reasoning behind the Klan and the hate crimes was like, look, you got to look at both their MO, their modus operandi, and their signature. The two different things between that, the modus operandi is learned behavior, and it's what they do changes. It's like the shoe guy, where he like just starts stealing shoes. And then right. ends up escalating to something crazy. It's like you, you're relearning based on what you know about crimes and about your previous murders to augment how you're committing these things. But the signature is what they have to do to fulfill. It's their reason. It doesn't change over time. It's very static and very powerful. And it is their calling card either in the way that they go about it. It could be their MO. It can be interlinked. So it's a little bit fuzzy. But he was saying for the Klan and for these hate crimes, they want it to be noticed and known that it's them. Mm -hmm. So why would they be subtly doing these things? Or we find a body three weeks later. Right. Like that doesn't make any sense. They want want it to be out there. Right. They want to control the conversation. They want to be in the conversation. They do not want to control these things from the background. They want to be outright and and, and stake their claim to Mm -hmm. where they think they should have political influence. Yeah. And the other thing that he was saying is knowing how these crimes get committed. A lot of times, like you said, it's like you've probably already interviewed him. For a lot of these cases, it's like it's usually somebody close to it or it's usually somebody that has access, like a night watchman or somebody that's in the community. Mm-hmm. And all of these things that were happening were happening within black communities. And it's like having some weird looking white guy walk through. It's like It'll everybody would have reported Absolutely. him or known that this was happening. So that's. Oh, yeah, I saw that guy. I, don't know. I didn't think anything of it. And then you have about 10 people saying they saw him on that day. It's like, yeah. well, he stuck out like a sore thumb. What do yeah. you think? So, yeah, of course. So that's where he, he's coming into yeah. how the race is connected. They get a copycat call from somebody saying, mm-hmm. yeah, there's a body over here. And yeah, I did it and whatever. And it's clearly this white redneck guy. And he's like, let's not humor this. Right except for to make a media show of the thing to catch him. So they, they know like, okay, well, what is this guy's MO? Clearly he didn't do it, but what does he want? Yeah, what's he, he wants doing? the attention and he wants to be known. So let's give it to him, but also suss him out so we can trace the call and figure out who he is. So what they do is he tells him, oh, it's over here on this road. This is where the body is, click. So they go, 
make a big show, get the media, get everybody in, search the wrong side of the road on purpose, looking dumbfounded. He calls them back and he's like, you guys are idiots. I knew it because that's what he wants. He wants to show that the police are idiots. And it just turned out it was some guy that had a grudge against a particular police officer. And so they got him. Uh, Had nothing to do with anything. Wow. But using the FBI's behavioral analytics, they were like, we can figure out how to get this crap out of the way so that we don't keep having copycat callers and nonsense. Right. But- they did realize, he was like, I wish we could have figured this out ahead of time, but a big part of this killer's MO was the media satisfaction. The actual killer did dump a body over there where they, the guy yeah. said there was the fake no situation happened. The wheels are turning now in our main character's head of like, how can we He's paying appeal? attention. He's paying attention. He's involved. How do we appeal to him yeah. and get him in the mix, get him involved in everything because this is a, like a big glory show for him. If you him. can start playing the game with him, he'll mm-hmm. slip up at some so point. The, yeah. You'll the big, get something. The big two things that they want to do, there's this big benefit concert that's going to be happening for all of these murders right. that are going on. And they're like, we know he's going to be there. We know he wants to be involved. He wants to see what's going on. So let's try and, in a backwards way, get him a free ticket to there. So they right. set up a situation where it's like, you can get in if you work as a security guard. Because again, they're trying to figure out the profile. Maybe he's kind of this type of person. And this is what the experience, like I said, the night watchman, like this is the experience that he would have. Right. What a perfect opportunity for him, him to come in unnoticed. Let's profile people that we want to hire for this position catered to him. Videotape them. And then analyze, yeah, the 40 people we hired for this. And yep. then we can <laughs> narrow the field. But took too long to figure out how to get right. all that to go down and who's- The first time anybody's doing this, period. Yeah, responsibility was for doing any of that stuff. The second thing, it's a trope, but it's true. People come back to the scene of the crimes. Yeah. They do this. Time yeah. to, this you know, Son of Sam Killer did it because they want to relive the fantasy of the power trip of what happened mm-hmm. there or with it. He's like, let's have these wooden crosses that go up for these memorial sites and at the graves and make it this whole big media stunt. Yeah. And then we look at him. He's definitely going to show up to these. Yeah. But again, bureaucracy, they, they couldn't get it done. This is all in the show. This is basically a whole episode. Um, but in real life, they couldn't get any of it done. They didn't get the crosses because of who's in charge of making them, who's in charge of distributing them, who's in charge of watching. And he was like huge wasted efforts. In the show, it's like they barely get them shipped to them, mm. barely enough time to hardly put them together. And then they're late. They don't they really get them up. It's a sham. Like he's running across town to get it up on the pedestal at the base of the church as they're like walking up. It's mm. such, it's, a, yeah, it's like, it's a what total a disaster. Yeah. So the next thing, since these are a failure, media, again, they know that he's watching. This was not. I mean, you can't control everything, but it got out in the media that they had found these fibers, you know, they're trying to figure, and they're like, oh, here's some, here's some evidence. Here's what's going on. And so our main guy, Douglas, he's like, I know where he's going to drop his bodies next, and it's going to be at the river. Mm -hmm. And like, how do you know that? It's like, because he doesn't want to get caught. And you just said that you can find fibers. He needs to put it in a place where stuff's going to be washed away, and it's going to be hard to get tangible DNA and physical evidence on these bodies. And sure enough, what do you know? The next three bodies are found at the river. Yep. And so then they're watching them. This is when they catch a guy, Wayne Williams, who dropped something into a river off of a bridge. They tailed him for a while and then they got him. But it was in connection to two murders, not these 30 other murders that had happened. Right. To, it wasn't younger kids. It was like 20-something. Yeah, they ended up pinning him for the for two of them. And so he still gets life for that. But yeah. For, yeah, yeah, they they illustrate all everything you've said is is the back half of season two. The only other things, like you said, I don't think people really know much about this. There is another podcast that came out, I believe, last year called Atlanta Monster. Really, and they profile serial killers. So this was their first season, and they went through and did 
a whole expose and a whole thing. So if you were more interested, oh, I'll, I'll post I'll a link to it. That but, out myself, but listen yeah. to that and get more of the details. And then I think their second season, they did the Zodiac Killer. Um, oh, cool. But yeah, the big question becomes, because he does fit the profile, he was a police buff interested in police. He drove a decommissioned police car around. He was at the benefit concert. Yeah. A lot of the stuff they had, but it's the controversy, I guess, of... Was he connected to all of these things? He has still denied it. I don't yeah, know he's, exactly he's all the still in prison now. He's 60-something right now, still maintains his innocence. Mm-hmm. And they reopened the case. This year in March, yes. Yeah. Um, so some people might say it's connected to this, but it was a little bit before the show came out. But renewed interest. They like connected said, him yeah. with the fibers on those on some of those early bodies. Mm-hmm. That's what it was, is fibers from his bedroom. Yeah. So I keep wondering, and they illustrate this well at the end of the show, that like the Atlanta you know, law enforcement does not want a black Right. But ultimately, he becomes their only suspect. And so they kind of have to go with it. But because they don't want to take on all of the implications for mm-hmm. this guy being responsible for all this stuff, they, they and the mother coalition, which I don't think we've spoken about, mm-hmm. there's a what is kind of a large character is this coalition of mothers who have lost all their children that Holden uh, Ford keeps meeting with throughout season two. They basically tell him. What's going to happen now? And they're like, well, we got him and they have enough and it's going to headed in the right direction. He thinks he can pack up shop. You know, like we, like you said, he doesn't find killers. They find the killers. I tell them who to look for. Yeah. They got him. They have everything they need. They're headed in the right direction. I got to go home. And it's, he's, he's telling them that. And they're like, you don't even understand. They still won't. You think it's done that, mm-hmm. that, that they got him? No. This, they're going to close this and they're going to shove this off. And nobody's going to be responsible for my child's death. Mm-hmm. her child's death what if it was your child's death would this be enough for you and he, and he kind of writes it off in that moment of like well they don't know you know like watch the process play out the last scene is the press conference saying that they're closing all of those investigations and that they cannot pursue them any longer yeah the final title card is that 27 out of the 31 cases were never followed up on yeah now reopened in march so uh, up until a certain point, they were not in rivers. So you have w- whatever physical evidence has been yeah. collected. It's like with this amount of evidence, if they are connected in this day and age, we should be able to get some sort of answers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm only just further shocked that something of this level, of this stature, of this, I mean, it's absolutely horrific. It's or almost cliche. Yeah. But it's also unique in the elements of, like we said, like, who and what who he ended up to and, be absolutely yeah. and, and absolutely uh so it there's all sorts of reasons of like why aren't we talking why haven't i why am i only now learning about this we know why aren't we talking about because we're, we're, we're talking we, about why haven't we solved this because it seems like we have the tools to hint to be able to piece this together because you know what those 30 people still aren't around and their family members still are yeah well that is interesting because it ties us into the last little section and the way that the book ends is a little bit pessimistic i feel like like hmm. he's not super into rehabilitation of these people where he's saying like insanity is a legal concept. And if somebody has an irresistible impulse, they're not going to stop like this Ed Kemper Mm -hmm. character where he's like, you give them the situation, you give them the shock to the system, they go out again and then they lose their job or they get spurned by a lover. It's like, which is surprising, I guess, maybe not, but he's seen it all not into like, yeah, they're going to change completely. And I mean, you you have to put them in the right situation, but chances are they're not going to get the help that they need. Right. Outside of it, so he's chances not are after that. a lifetime of this type of behavior and yeah. thought processes to, to, that you could totally eradicate and avoid those types of pitfalls in mm-hmm. every instance. No, but he's also saying it's like the insanity thing they like to use, but it is 
he believes a choice. It's like no serial killer ever just murdered somebody in full view of a police officer. And a lot of the times you'll see the in these things and- where they're like, they had the opportunity and then they didn't. And it's like, well, then that was a choice because you could have just done it there. Right. But something compelled you not to, therefore something compelled you to right. do it. And then right. the last section he's going into is about the Green River killer, mm. which happened up in Washington. And he consulted Ted Bundy on learning more about that area and those ca- okay. those kills. But he ends the book saying, sometimes you don't catch them. They're still at large because the book came out in 95. But of course, this right. person was found in 2001. Good Lord. But it's just interesting that the book ends with like, sometimes you don't find them. And now just history has gone yeah. on. Time has passed. And we did find yeah. them. Yeah. And we did get them. But yeah, then he retired the year this book came out and uh, is just still doing like consulting and writing books and being chill, being chill. Jesus. What an actual Sherlock Holmes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) My last two little tidbits, which I think are worth mentioning as a little postscript is this other guy that he worked with, Rob Ressler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't really mention that much. And I don't know if it's like a Stan Lee, Jack Kirby thing where there was kind of a falling out or, I mean, also Rob Ressler died. So he does not have the same voice that he can have in modern times to when did he die? these things. When? Yeah. So he died in 2013. Oh, okay. So he's just passed away recently. Yeah. But for whatever reason, Douglas has become the voice and face. But he, like I said, he was the main guy running the thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he got more of it. Because I've heard also his side is less cut and dry just from reading the reviews and is more empathetic or more like emotionally involved. And see. And that, but that speaks to the Holden Ford character. He's very much, he's trying to set aside, you know, the, like he wants to do the work and the work is important. And if, is the work not as important to you as it is to me? Is very much as it, how he comes off. Um, and so that, it, people mm-hmm. like that, it can negate the, uh, the peripheral emotions of the people kind of in your support group. I mean, yeah. he, because he's so weirdly interested in wanting to empathize with these killers but then he just forgets that like his partner has a whole other life and maybe is dealing with like a whole other personal child murder, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it's like, you're not giving enough to this team and, and, and the work that we do is like, well, also there's like a lot that goes on in somebody's life that might also stress them out with the work that they do. Yeah. It was very interesting. And what's the balance? And does that turn you into somebody you hate? Right. Very much so. The, the, the idea of, of nature versus nurture is just palpable throughout all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, what makes a killer? Is it born into us? Is it factors in, in our upbringing in the world yeah. around us? Well, and this is what he was saying about why, why no women. Or why yeah. when there's a Very woman serial huh? killer, it's like such a rare, rare thing. Yeah, where's the woman active shooter? Well, and he was, I think, saying is like maybe it has to do with – testosterone or women internalizing stressors versus men acting it out or some psych psychosis there. The other thing that he's going into is like, it's interesting that the men that turn into this usually have really abusive moms or mm-hmm. really neglectful moms mm-hmm. or really demeaning moms. And then they lash it out and take it out on women. So it might be like their moms are, and this is me being crazy, but like are the female versions of the serial killer and passing it down to their sons who then act it out in a way that is much more graphic and crazy versus the woman which just takes all of that energy and puts mm-hmm. it into that kid. I don't the know. The Manson. You know? The Manson of it. Yeah. <laughs> Women are like, no. <laughs> oh, God. 
but uh, I don't know. He doesn't. It's he doesn't very know interesting. Either. They talk about this openly in season one. Um, that at that school when he meets the principal that you mentioned, that's like beginning to like maybe touch kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he outright says that in a group of of ten year olds. It's like, sorry, boys, you're way more likely than any of the girls in the room. I mean, again, I mean, echoes to straight to today. I mean, obviously, we're you know there are things happening in this country, and 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 male violence in it yeah. seems to be. Uh, there, there's a correlation there. And I imagine, <laughs> hopefully, with five seasons, this show will continue to explore those yeah. concepts. There's something wrong with the men. And <laughs> what's wrong with us? Yeah. Got to do some thinking on it. This was fascinating, Taylor. Yeah, yeah. Thank you guys so much for being with us. I want to shout out to our Instagram page. Please hit it up. That's where you're going to find all of our, our funny memes. Get Jokes. in contact with us. Get you through the week until you can listen to an episode. At Illiterate Pod. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Bye.